Good morning. Once again, we want to acknowledge to our Father and our God in heaven that we are grateful for all of his love, mercy, and blessings. Uh, we are blessed not only by what God gives, but also by who he is and what he does. One of the things that God has assured us of is that uh, he will never leave us. And inasmuch as God is faithful, we have the blessed assurance that we are never alone in this world. God is with us and within us. He is ever ready, willing, and able to supply all that we need to make it through this sojourn called life. And for this reason, the psalmist has declared, uh, Psalm 55, verse 17, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. And for all of God's blessings, we ought to be eternally grateful. Uh, one of our IT brethren, battery on this is clicking, a blinking rather, which I take to mean that the battery is getting ready to die. Uh, now, I don't know how long the sermon is going to be, but I don't want to race the battery uh, to see which of us is finished first. I, I don't know if you can uh, get, oh, Brother Bruce, thank you. We'll, we'll trade. Bruce, what you get? Like I said, your battery ain't blinking at all. It wasn't on. And so asking it shall be given to you. Thank you, brother. Uh, want to just, um, I guess for informational purposes, I don't suspect that you pay me any more attention than you pay anyone else, but you may have noticed when I came in this morning uh, that Sister Cook is not here. Uh, now she is in San Francisco for about the next three weeks, uh, helping our youngest daughter uh, with our newest grandchild, which is also our youngest daughter's first baby. Uh, so certainly uh, thank those of you that have prayed for her. She did make it out there safely. Uh, she went out on Wednesday uh, and got somewhat of a, a, a trade-off uh, because Sister Cook went to San Francisco and Ricky too came back from San Francisco. And so he is here uh, this morning and glad to have him. Now, he literally walked off the plane and came here. I picked him up at BWI at, uh, well, the plane landed at nine. It was about 9.30 when we left the airport. And so he is here literally right off the airplane. Uh, <laughs> glad to have him uh, with us uh, this morning. Now, uh, he'll be here uh, for about a week now, I don't know if he can stand his old man as long as that. I, I, I don't suspect uh, that he came home expressly just to see me, but I, I'm going to say that's the case. Uh, and so he'll be here for uh, about a week and then Lord willing, uh, God will bless them to have safe travels, uh, one back to San Francisco and the other back here uh, to Laurel. We want to direct your attention this morning to Hebrews chapter 12, the text that was read into our hearing. 
Uh, we want to read again there verse number three. Hebrews 12, verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Based on the words of the apostle here in Hebrews chapter 12, we want to use this morning as a subject, the contradiction of sinners. Now, remember that our sub-theme for July is things Jesus endured. And here in verse 3, it is declared that he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. As we consider the text that we have before us here in Hebrews 12, the words of the apostle exhort us to compare Jesus's sufferings to ours, that we might learn how to remain steadfast in the face of opposition. In other words, we are being told what Jesus went through so that we might follow his example. One of the sobering facts of life is that everyone will face opposition at some point in their living. You remember the declaration of Jesus in John 15, uh, verses 18 and 19. He says, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. I don't think it's hard to see from what Jesus says there in John chapter 15, uh, that the people of God ought to be out of place in the world. Jesus said, you are not of the world, I have chosen you from it. And the lesson to be learned from the exhortation uh, here in John 15 and from the text is that we must ascribe greater weight to what God accomplishes through us than what may happen to us. And thus in Hebrews chapter 12, we have Jesus as an example to this end. Now the text declares that Jesus endured the contradiction, uh, uh, some other translations render that, the hostility of sinners. Have you ever had someone be opposed to you? And, and not just opposed, but openly hostile in their opposition. You see, hostility takes opposition to another level. You remember in John 8 and verse number 59 that the Bible says there that the Jews took up stones to stone him. And the opposition that Jesus faced required not only the faith and the courage to endure, but also the discipline to resist responding in kind. Now, can you imagine having all power and somebody's going to threaten you with some stoning? Now, I imagine somewhere in you that there, there, there might just be the temptation or oh, you want to trade fastballs, do you? Well, well let's see whose who's fastball is fastest. See, you might throw rocks, but I created the rocks that you were going to throw. So whatever it is you have in mind to do, I can one-up you if I choose to. But it required some discipline 
not to respond in kind. Uh, you remember the passage in Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Paul says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Now, you got to resist the temptation to get even or to do unto others as they have did unto you. That, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, do as you would have them do unto you but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Do you know when you take revenge, you're stealing from God? But that's what stealing is, when you take somebody else's stuff without their permission. Now, God says vengeance is mine, and he hadn't given us permission to take it. So whenever I try to get even with folk, whenever I do to them what they have done to me, God said, you better stop stealing from me because vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. Now that's tough. If your enemy is hungry, the person that's doing you wrong, rather than do unto them as they are doing unto you, Holy Spirit says you feed him. Give him uh, if he thirsts, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's one of those, uh, you know, if they give that to you straight out the baptistry, you probably struggle with it. Uh, uh, that's one of those you pick up somewhere down the road and you understand what it is that God has done for you and what it is God wants to do for others but we are not to retaliate or respond in kind. But not only are we given the exhortation to endure, but we are also given the rationale for the exhortation. In, in verse three, Paul says, lest ye become weary and faint in your minds. You know, the first step toward deserting the faith is, is becoming disheartened or exhausted in the pursuit of it. And so the apostle is telling us, you have to follow Jesus's example in this race because this race is a marathon. And if you wanna finish the race, then you gotta run like Jesus ran because you won't finish it any other way. When we look at Hebrews chapter 12, God is giving us some real talk. That the Lord is saying, I understand that it takes more than talk, uh, uh, more than just talk to make it. So God has given us the support and fellowship of a spiritual family. He's given us the indwelling of his spirit and the comfort of his word because he understands what we are up against. So when we consider the example of Jesus, it's much more than a matter of historic interest. It is significant for every believer. Careful consideration of Jesus's endurance to opposition has the power to encourage us and keep us from gradually fading and dropping out of the race when things get tough. Someone has said that one runs with endurance by enduring many runs. You know, there's a great deal of wisdom to whoever said that, that this would be akin to saying that one builds muscle by using muscle. Now, if we were weightlifters, and I would venture that all of us have some experience, if not in the gym, uh, you have some experience in exercising. 
uh, if we were weightlifters, we would find out that we all have some things in common. Now, the first thing that we have in common is that my potential capacity is greater than my present reality. Now, what I mean when I say that is what I will be able to lift is greater than what I can lift right now. If you've ever worked with weights, you don't walk in and just go over and try to bench press 250 pounds. Now, that, that's just asking for trouble. That, that, that's just asking, as they said when I was coming through, that's just asking to eat it. Uh, you know what I mean? When you try to push it up and, and you can't push it up, it just falls back down on you. That's eating it. Well, whatever you can lift, you got to work your way up to it. You, you can't just go in and start lifting your max. It, it, you've got to exercise your muscle. And as you exercise your muscle, exercising the muscle builds muscle. And so down the road, you may have gone in only able to lift uh, uh, 50, but, but down the road, you'll find now I can do more than 50. Well, well the same thing is, is true with us, spiritually speaking. My, my present capacity doesn't equal my, my future potential. What I can stand right now isn't what God is going to bless me to be able to stand down the road, but see, God works with us. The second thing that we would find uh, that we have in common is that my potential capacity has a limit. And by that, I mean to say you will reach a point where you are lifting all that you can lift. Now, you may start at 50 and find out two weeks later, now I can do 70. But at some point, you're going to hit a limit and say, this is what I can do. Now, it's not like the long, as long as you keep going, that amount is going to keep going up. You're going to hit a limit. This is the most that I can lift. I, I think they call that maxing out. Uh, now, if you listen to brothers talk sometime, usually when we, we tell you what our max is, it's usually more than our max is. Uh, you know, that's just a guy thing. You know, if, if my max was uh, uh, 150, uh, when, when I tell you the story, my max is gonna be 200. So, so sisters, whenever you hear brother say what his max is, knock some of that off so, so you won't be disappointed. You know, when, when you courting and he tell you all he's gonna do when you get married, knock some of that off so you won't be disappointed uh, uh, after you tie the knot. Now, now I wanna give you a, a, a so what for, the, for, these, for these two things. Spiritually speaking, and really in any other context, God knows my potential at every stage of my living. Now, it doesn't matter where I am in my living. It doesn't matter how close I am to my potential capacity. God knows what I can stand right now. You remember what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able to bear, but will whip the temptation also may awake, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What Paul is saying is God knows your capacity at any stage in your living. At any point in my living, God knows what I can stand. And, and guess what God does as a matter of grace and mercy? God says, I will never let what you have to lift be more than I'll make you to be able to lift. 
That, that's just the gracious God that he is. So, so we need to stop this stuff about I can't take anymore. Well, well, if God allows some more, then you can take some more. Now, I, I know what it is not to want anymore. Uh, you know, sometimes we say we can't take anymore. What we mean is I don't want anymore. But, but God is faithful. He will never allow what I'm called to live to be more than he enables me uh, uh, to live. Now, with that thought in mind, let us consider some things that Jesus endured with a view to our own living. Now, again, in verse three, the, the apostle says, for consider him that endured such contradiction or such hostility of sinners against himself. I, I submit to you, number one, that one of the things Jesus endured was discouragement by criticism. Jesus was well acquainted with this tactic by the opposition. And let me say that when people are so opposed to you that they become critical, expect them to ignore the good and fabricate evil. You know, Jesus would heal people. And rather than acknowledge that he had healed somebody, they would criticize and, and, and discourage, try to discourage by saying, but you healed them on the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22 through 24, and I want to read that to you, they tried to discourage in another way. Now, in this case, Jesus cast out a devil. But now listen to Matthew 12, starting at verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Now that's quite a miracle. Here you got a man that can't see or talk when they bring him to Jesus and he can do both of them. And, and, and I get the impression from the way it's said in the text that he left with 20-20 vision. But now rather than acknowledge the miracle that he did, watch verse, uh, well, 23. And all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? But now watch, watch the Pharisee. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now I say they fabricate evil because if you follow the text there, Jesus says, see, that don't even make sense. Jesus said a house divided against itself can't stand. You know, if I cast out devils, you know, cause you call me the chief devil, then how, you, how, do, how do the rest of y'all do this? I'm working against myself. Is that really what you're saying? Well, well, if I work against myself, ultimately I'm going to defeat myself. When people criticize you, when they are critical, expect them to ignore the good and, and point out something wrong. You know, when, when, when people are critical, they say, yeah, you know, if you achieve something, yeah, you did A, B, and C, but if you had done it this way, you could have done D, E, and F. Now, now when you run into that kind of individual, uh, you know, let it be like they used to say, in one ear and out the other. You know, when, when they just have nothing positive to say, I, I, I wanna look at one more example, uh, Nehemiah chapter four. And, and I would that time would uh, allow me to fill in more of the background like, like Brother Holt is doing uh, on Wednesdays with First Kings. Uh, I, I wish time would, you know, we could fill in more of the background of what was happening. 
But suffice it to say that this is a classic case of the attempt to discourage by criticism. In uh, Nehemiah chapter four, verse number one, but it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Now remember that Jerusalem had been overrun. They had you know, just ransacked the city, burned the walls down. And so here they're rebuilding the walls. And the Bible said when Sanballat heard about it. Now, now when you do things, and especially when you do things for God, somebody gonna hear about it. And notice they weren't around broadcasting what they were doing, but, but word just got out that they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now watch what he says in verse two. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? See, not just Jews, but feeble Jews. Now, feeble wasn't, you know, it wasn't a word we used when I was coming through, if you were talking about somebody, but, but feeble is not a compliment. You know, somebody called you feeble, you understand what feeble means. They're they, they not speaking well of you. What do these feeble Jews, will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Sam Ballard doing all he can to discourage them by being critical. Then verse three, now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. Now expect folk that are up to evil to have some company. When Sam Ballard got started criticizing, well, Tobiah saw the need to jump in and help. Even that which they build, if a fox go up. Now, you ever seen a fox? You know, now, you know, I say all the time I'm an urbanite, but we built, uh, we, humanity, we, we built so much. Uh, you know, I've seen foxes. They ain't much bigger than the cat. He said, if a fox run on the wall, it's going to fall over. Now, how shaky does the wall have to be if something that little going to knock it down by running on it? Even if a fox go up, he shall break, he shall even break down their stone wall. Understand something about people that are critical. Your critics never criticize you for good or benevolent reasons. Now, I'm not saying don't listen with, to what folk have to say, but when you can de determine that somebody is just being critical, appreciate that there's not a good reason behind their criticism. Now, they'll criticize of envy, they'll criticize of jealousy, they'll criticize of hatred, but never of goodwill. When we look at Nehemiah chapter four, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, and he likely saw any improvement in, in Jerusalem's status as a threat to his own power and prestige. Well, well, if you all do something, it's gonna take away from what I got. So let me come over here and try to discourage you just by being critical of what you're doing. And appreciate, there is a vast difference between criticism and correction. Because you know, sometimes we need to be corrected. And just because somebody endeavors to correct me doesn't necessarily mean they're being critical. But the reverse is true as well. Just because they're being critical doesn't mean they have my best interest in heart. Well, well, what's the difference between criticism and correction? Well, I submit to you that the motive, the spirit, and the manner are different. 
Now, when I say the motive, the motive is the reason for doing it. See, Sam Ballard didn't go out there to, to, to try to help them, you know, to, to give them some tips on how to build a better wall. Sam Ballard wanted them to stop building the wall altogether. The Jews weren't critical of Jesus because they wanted him to be more proficient in his healing. They wanted him to stop calling attention to the fact that he is the son of God. Look, the people are going to stop following us if you keep on doing what you're doing. The spirit in which it is done will be different. Now, now when I say the spirit, I, I mean the attitude with which it is done. You know, when, when you're trying to correct somebody, you don't do that with an air of superiority. You know, you, you, you don't do that with, with a self-righteous air to you. When you're trying to correct somebody, if you're trying to correct them as we ought to correct one another, it, your hope is uh, uh, that you will be better because of this interaction. And the manner will be different. You know, the way it's done. You know, sometimes it's just the way we do things that that's the problem. You know, you can tell me I'm wrong and I might be wrong. But tell me I'm wrong in the wrong way. See, come to me with your voice raised and your finger in my face. See, now I might be wrong, but you're encouraging me to get ready to do some more wrong. <laughs> see, see, who, who, who you raising your voice at? You better get your finger out my face. Look, I don't live in West Baltimore no more, but I was raised there. <laughs> in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, the Bible says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, pointing out your fault for the sake of pointing out your fault, even if I'm accurate, with no concern for you is just criticism. See, I just want you to know you're wrong. I'm not trying to reconcile us. I don't want you to be better. I just want you to know you're wrong. Well, that's criticism. And criticism is discouraging. Now, notice the Hebrew writer says that Jesus had to endure the hostility of sinners. Now, we know they tried to discourage him, but, but what did Jesus do? See, Jesus knew better than his critics. See, you might say I only cast out devils by the power of the chief devil, but I know better than that. See, I know what I'm doing is by the power of my father. I, I know who I am. And, and if you're going to make it through life, you have to be secure with who you are when people try to criticize you. See, see I, I have to have some confidence in myself and in what I'm doing to be able to stand up uh, uh, to the voice of critics. But not only did Jesus endure discouragement by criticism, but he also endured intimidation by threatening. And he was well acquainted with this tactic by the opposition. You know, it was the threat of violence uh, uh, that Jesus' disciples mentioned when he was uh, uh, about to go to Bethany again. You remember Lazarus died and Jesus was going to go raise Lazarus? You remember the disciples said to him, they said, look, of late, the Jews have been trying to stone you. It, they tried to intimidate Jesus by threatening and appreciate sometimes the only difference between violence and the threat of violence is opportunity. And that's what they were telling Jesus. See, they would stone you if they could, 
You go back over there and give them an opportunity and they just may. Jesus wasn't intimidated. Now, I'm not saying just walk out in the traffic, you know, without looking both ways, talking about God is going to protect me. No, that's foolish. You know, use some wisdom when you, you know, the Bible says a, a, a wise man foresees danger. You know, you know what foresee mean? See, because you can see and you can foresee. See mean I don't see it till it's right in front of me. Foresee means I have the ability to look at circumstances and discern. See, if it's traffic just, just flying up and down the street, see, I ought to foresee. I need to wait for the light to change and, and for that thing, that signal that says it's safe to walk. And even then, don't just take off. Because, you know, yellow light don't mean slow down to some folk. Yellow light means hurry up and get through before it turn red. You, you got to use some wisdom as you go through life. And, but intimidation by threatening doesn't always imply physical violence. Now, now it can, but sometimes it is it, something else. Do you know holding to Christian values is increasingly being threatened by legal action? Do you know they, they, they call standing up to God's standards of morality is branded a hate crime now? Yeah, when, when you won't jump on the bandwagon of a man marrying a man, or a woman marrying a woman. Some folks say that's a hate crime and you ought to do jail time. Now, now we just need to stand with God. Now, now I'm not volunteering to go to jail. I know some folk in jail and, and from everything they tell me it's not a nice place. And, and, and I have no desire to take up residence there, uh, but sometimes we come down to making a choice. Now, now do I stand with God or am I or allow myself to be intimidated uh, uh, by the threat? Now, I know, you know, some cases have gone this way and some have gone the other way, but we can't depend on the legal system to get it right. We got to stand with God, whatever the legal system may say. God has some values that we just ought to hold to. And not only may we be threatened by legal action, but there's also the threat of ostracism. Now, now, I'm just going to use ostracism as a broad umbrella, you know, just being called narrow-minded and old-fashioned and, and all of that. I, all of that, in my estimation, goes under ostracism. But when we talk about being ostracized, you remember the, the fellow that was born blind in John chapter 9? You remember why nobody really wanted to say he was born blind and Jesus had healed him? You remember the Bible said the Jews had already decided if anybody confessed Jesus, they were going to throw him out the temple. And not just throw him out the temple, you're really going to be thrown out of society. And nobody was going to want to deal with you then. Well, well, let's see ostracism clearly. Number one, you can't be put out of that to which you do not belong. Now, remember Jesus says we are not in the world of, uh, yeah, we're not, we're not of the world, but, but we're in the world. See, you can't kick me out of society because I'm not in it in the first place. I opted out when I obeyed the gospel of Jesus. Now I'm in the world, you know, we got to live here, but I'm not part of the world. Jesus changed our status when we were baptized uh, uh, into his name. See, so you can't kick me out of what I don't belong to. You know, like somebody going, you know, they're going to kick me out of, 
I, you know, I hate to call a group because, you know, when you got a diverse group, you probably got somebody in here that's part of it. But let's let's say there was a group called the People Haters. Now, 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 if you were part of the People Haters, you need to repent and come on up here and ask for prayer. Let, let's say there was a group called the People Haters. And, and, and you know, and they say to me now, unless you preach, uh, uh, you know, something contrary to the word of God, we're going to kick you out of the People Haters. Well, you can't kick me out of the people haters because I'm not in the people haters to start with. And I have no desire to be part of the people haters. And, and when we talk about seeing this thing clearly, anywhere Jesus is not welcome, we have no desire to be in the first place. So if you're going to kick me out of something that Jesus ain't welcome, please kick me out. Save me the trouble of leaving. Because if Jesus ain't welcome, I don't want to be there anyhow. He endured intimidation by threatening. But then there is the third consideration this morning. He also endured humiliation by slander. You ever had folk just slander you? I mean, just, just say stuff about you. And I, and I don't mean just say stuff about you. Just, just one old preacher used to say, tell them slime pit lies on you. You know, that, 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 that dirty stuff they tell about you. And that sometimes they might be telling the truth. You know, just because it's true don't necessarily mean we need to be saying it. You know, Solomon said, a fool speaks all his mind. You know, if you just tell everything you know, well, well we already know what your problem is. He, endure <laughs> he endured humiliation by slander. Now, Jesus was no stranger to this tactic by the opposition. Now, Jesus was slandered. He was called a devil and a deceiver. Remember, they were still calling him a deceiver after they killed him. Remember, after he died, they, they went back to Pilate and said, we remember this deceiver said, now you done killed a man. Now, if he, you know, was just a hoax, why are you still trying to fool with him after he's dead? Remember, this deceiver said that he was going to be raised up from the dead on the third day. Well, you, you can watch the tomb with whoever you want to watch him. That ain't going to stop God from raising him up. And remember, they posted soldiers out there and, and look, Jesus, just he did what he said he was going to do. On the third day, he got up out from that tomb. But remember, they called him a deceiver. Now, you know, you've been called names, but like we looked last week, you don't call some names, too. But, but only Jesus can say, I, I've never called a name, but I've been called names. And not only was Jesus slandered, but remember Paul's point. At times, the people of God are slandered also. You remember, Brother Job, back in Job chapter 1, remember God came out praising Job. And now that's saying something when God praised you. Uh, you know, we praise ourselves, and you, uh, you know, sisters, I just told you, when, when brothers praise themselves, they're going to bump it up a little bit. But, but when God praises you, have you considered my servant Job? You know, I, God couldn't bring up just everybody's name with the devil. Have you considered my servant Job that there's nobody like him? But then you remember what Satan said, starting verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side, 
Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Effectively, what Satan said about Job, I hear you talking good about him, but he really nothing but a belly friend. If you weren't treating him so nice, and if he wasn't living so well, he wouldn't be faithful. And effectively, what the devil is saying, anybody can say hallelujah in the day of prosperity, but send some adversity his way and see if he says hallelujah. Now, you know Job's account. You know Job kept praising God, even though all of his stuff was taken and his children were killed, and he was stricken with a disease from head to toe, and he still praised God. But what I find interesting is the timing of Satan's slander. Now, now there's never a good time for slander, but why slander Job right after God praised him? God says, have you considered my servant Job? And boom, here comes the slander. You know, sometime in life we wonder why this, why now? You might just be having a Job moment. Have you considered my servant Job? And boom, here comes the devil. Does Job fear God for naught? Why are you going through adversity now? Well, maybe I've been living like I should. And God is starting to get some praise from my life. And here comes old Satan. Turn the tide and see what he does. See if he still say hallelujah when some hardship come his way. And you know, some of us may have given some credence to what the devil said. Well, yeah, you know, if I was living like Job, I'd, I'd be praising God too. You know, all my bills paid and my children acting right. My marriage is good. Yeah, and anybody could praise God when all of that was going. See, what's really dangerous about slander is that it creates suspicion. You ever had somebody tell you something bad about somebody else? And then you start wondering if it could be possible. Really? I thought he looked kind of funny. <laughs> you know, he got a sneaky eye. I knew he wasn't all that he walk around here like he is. One of the most important and precious things a person has is their reputation, their character. In Proverbs 22, one, we're told a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Your character is worth more to you than money. And the thing about it is, if you sully somebody's character, that stain may never come out. Now, like I said about Jesus last week, Jesus knew who he was. And, and those that believed in him knew who he was. But do you think some folk didn't give some credence to some of the evil things that were said about him? Do you think whenever, and let's make you the subject, do you think whenever your name comes up that everything that is said is positive? Well, some of the negative inaccurate, but you think that stopped folk from believing it anyway? The potential harm of slander 
is why we ought to be careful of how we speak of one another. Now, you just expect your enemies to slander you because they're your enemies. But shame on us when family slanders family. See, your family, I should be able to depend on. Well, what does family say about family? Well, that might be true, but he's still my brother. He's not perfect. That's why he obeyed the gospel, because he know he needs Jesus. He's better than he was. Now, which one of us can say, I get it right all day long, every day, day after day? Not a one of us could say that. But Jesus endured humiliation by slander. Can you imagine being God and having somebody call you a devil? Can you imagine never committing even one sin and being called a deceiver or being executed as a criminal? And I know, you know, sticks and stones. And I have to have confidence in myself and believe I am who I am, but don't lie on me. You know, that, that's just low down. That, that ought to be like in football. Yeah, yeah, you may not know football, but football, the worst penalty you can get is a 15-yarder, aside from getting kicked out the game in the first place. Now, the 15-yarder is a personal foul. Now, when they say personal foul, that means you've done... I mean, they're lesser file. You know, you can hold folk. That's me, so they can't do their job. That's only 10 yards. You know, you can false start, which means you, you start moving before they say go. That's only five yards. But, but when you do something, man, just egregiously wrong, that's 15. Well, slander is a personal file. That, that, that's just 15 yards. That's, look, we ought to throw you out the game for that one. But Jesus endured it. And he makes us able to endure all that he endured without retaliating in kind or going home and being in tears all night because they were talking about me. You know, if that's going to make you cry, let me help you. People talk about you all the time. They've been talking about you since you were born. They're going to talk about you all your life. They're going to talk about you after you're gone. And all of it ain't gonna be positive. So you can just give that one away. I, look, they're, they're talking about me ain't gonna keep me from having peace. But God invites us to be at peace with him, to be reconciled to him by the blood of Christ Jesus and so that he can work in us to endure the opposition that we'll face in life. Now, he does this by calling us by the gospel. He requires that we hear the news that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, but raised the third day for our justification. Romans 10, 17 declares that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We are required to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus says, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. We must be willing to repent of sin, to turn from living life after my own devices and giving control of my living to God. In Acts 17, 30, 31, it is declared there, 
that the times of this ignorance, God winked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has ordained, by Christ Jesus. We must be willing to make the confession of faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus declares, whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father, which is in heaven. And we must be willing to be baptized in water for the remission of sins. When the gospel message was first preached in Acts chapter 2, uh, the people were pricked by the message and they asked the question what they needed to do to be reconciled to God. And in Acts 2.38, Peter responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When we go down into the waters of baptism, God washes away our sin by the blood of Christ Jesus and dwells us with his spirit. Now he puts his spirit inside of us to help us live right, but we're not gonna do it on our own. And then he adds us to the church. He gives us a spiritual family to support us, to help us run this race that we call life. When we come up out of the waters of baptism, it is required that we live obediently in God's service and for his glory. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul declares that we ought to walk worthy of the vocation with which we have been called. Perhaps you're here in our audience this morning or you're listening via one of the uh, social media outlets. And if you're listening through social media, we uh, exhort you to reach out to our elders at elders at laurelchurch.net. If you're here in the audience, then we bid you to come as we stand and as we sing the song of invitation. <laughs> 